Hello and welcome to Living Being. I'm Patrick Randall. I'm Chris Park. This is the podcast where we talk about everything and anything to do with bees. This episode we're talking to Norman Carrick, uh, the eminent bee scientist. today but she is um with us in spirit um but before we go to the interview chris how's your week been from the point of view of beekeeping any any experiences or things things you've noticed yes yes well it's been wet hasn't it and and then some sunny spells in between and every time there's a sunny spell the the volume of the apiary just just rockets and i sort of rush over thinking there might be a swarm and it's just the, the sheer amount of drones in the air and the kind of loudness and and you know whether it, and the same can happen when it start when the sky's darker and they'll come rushing home yeah it's just nice moments and i have had a swarm this week i did have a swarm interestingly from a from a, a what the first colony that swarmed this year they swarmed twice so there's quite a lot of a, a sort of a bees making the most of of the weather it's been so hot isn't it so much forage around until recently yeah they're just they're just maximizing on on on, on opportunity to to increase and, and uh and procreate and perpetuate it's amazing it's, it's, all, it's almost as if they know if they kind of got a, a barometer you know in in the hive um as if they kind of know when the the good spells are coming up perhaps you know it feels it feels and as if the bad making, spells and the bad spells yeah yeah, yeah because it, it seems to me they're making preparations for swarming you know uh kind of behind your back <laughs> yeah how do they know how do they know how do they know like a few days in advance, <laughs> in advance yeah. what the weather's going to do they must be able to smell it from the atlantic or something or, the, or see some kind of solar flare that we can't see with the naked eye yeah that might yeah. be affecting the weather or something so we'll go over to the interview with norman carrick and chris you know norman what can you tell us about norman yes i know norman he's a he's a very well-known and and very well-regarded bee scientist, entomologist. And I've met him through the National Honey Show and the Spring Convention and beekeeping history groups. He's a really nice guy, uh, great to chat to, and uh, we're so blessed to have him as part of Living Being. Hello, Norman. You've got uh, Patrick and Chris. Hi, Norman. Hello. Well, thank you, Norman. Thanks for uh, volunteering your time, um, albeit during lockdown. <laughs> and uh, how, how is it your end? How is lockdown for you? Uh, it's fine, really. We're, we're lucky to live in a place where we're, we're fairly away from things and uh, we can take the dogs out for a walk and not meet anyone. So, uh, uh, so uh, I feel very sorry for people trapped in flats in towns at the moment. Gosh, yes. We're lucky out here to be to be in rural situations. Yes, counting our yes. blessings. Is it affecting your work much, Norman? Uh, well, there's a there's a project at the university we were planning to do this summer that we can't do, but uh, a project I'm involved in, which is a citizen science project with beekeepers. They're doing it on their own bees, so um, so that's going ahead. Um, so um, 
and, and I'm trying to write various articles and things that I haven't done before. So uh, I'm trying to catch up with things. And the bees don't know it's a lockdown, do they? No, well, fortunately, beekeeping is a, a permitted activity. So uh, people are able to go and look at their bees and uh, uh, things are getting going at the moment. That's fortuitous, isn't it? For, for us and the yeah. bees and, and many farmers, I should think. Yes. Great. So, Norman, you've been beekeeping quite a lot of your life, haven't you? Yeah, I, I started beekeeping when I was 15. Gosh, uh, and, that's uh, very young. Was that at school or your parents, grandparents? Uh, no, it was... My, my mother was a school teacher and yeah. a colleague of hers had kept bees and this colleague retired and moved away and had some spare beekeeping equipment. And I think my mother had always sort of vaguely hankered with the idea of keeping bees. And so she said, oh, you know, why don't we buy their spare equipment and take up beekeeping? And we've joined the local beekeeping association and somebody there was doing evening classes. So my mother and I did evening classes together, learning beekeeping, and then got our bees that same year. Great. And you've never looked back. <laughs> and I've never looked back, yes. <laughs> Good. So, so uh, what, where did you grow up? Uh, so that was sort of suburban Kent, Chiselhurst. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then after a couple of years there, my parents moved down to West Sussex. And so my bees have been in Sussex ever since. I see. Okay, so you're always the southeast, I guess. That's your your, yes, your area. Yes. And it, does it still happen? I, I know there were foresters from the Savanac Forest around here used to work for for gales, and they used to take you know truckloads of bees down to Kent for sort of pollination purposes and things like that. And with all these funny stories of um, breaking down on the, on the on the motorways and things like that, does does that still happen? Pollination of apple cops is incredibly important because uh, apples and pears won't set any fruit at all unless they have insect pollination. So the, the Bee Farmers Association runs a, a pollination scheme whereby growers who have apples contact them and they put them in touch with bee farmers who can supply bees at the critical time of year. And uh, I think most commercial beekeepers' pollination contracts are a large chunk of their, their annual income. Uh, and so you know, uh, for the last month or, or so, there have been lots of bees moving around the country to apple orchards. We've had such a great spring here, uh, full of blossoms, like everything's blossomed at once. And the apples have been especially busy, actually, so I think it might be a good year for apples this year. <laughs> this year who knows? So you became a beekeeper at the age of 15, and with your mother, so it's always been part of your sort of formative years in a way, hasn't it? And, and, and then... Yes, I mean... When I, when I went away to university, my bees were somewhat neglected uh, and then uh, for a few years afterwards. But uh, since I've actually worked on bees for a living, I've uh, tried to uh, look after them. But sometimes they do get a bit neglected because uh, there's uh, not always enough time. But uh, yeah. the, the intention's always there. Have, have you always placed a limit on um, how, how many bees you want to be keeping? How many... Yes, yes. I mean, the, the, the first few years, like many people, I was incredibly enthusiastic. And I so I started with uh, one nucleus and then a swarm appeared in the garden. So I put it in a box and then we found other people who'd got bees they wanted to sell. And within a couple of years, I had about 10 or more colonies which were swarming all over the place. And it was all a bit disastrous. So I, I decided to rationalise. And so for many years, I've um, had 
four or fewer colonies and I've currently only got three uh, and that's a sort of good number to have so you've got honey but uh, uh, you don't have to go to the effort of finding places to sell it and uh, uh, and it doesn't take up too much of your time. Has your approach changed over the, over the years as to how you've how you've managed your your bees? Yes, I mean, I I I think I originally learnt. Uh, I mean, I was taught by a, a lovely man called Peter Springle, who sadly is no longer with us. Who had some very interesting methods for for beekeeping based on his own careful observations uh, and uh, his understanding of how bees behaved. But then I read lots of you know books about how to keep bees and and was very influenced by some of the. The, the things that amateur beekeepers recommended. But then I uh, started working on bees at Rothamsted Experimental Station, and there they developed a very simplified method of beekeeping specifically for research purposes. So the aim wasn't to get lots of honey. And so it was a very simplified system with totally standardized equipment, and they didn't bother with things like queen excluders, and they only had one size of frame uh, and had done away with many of the things that that uh, uh, are often considered essential, and, and so I've simplified my beekeeping ever since. And and uh, I, I certainly don't go and stir up my bees every every week as some people recommend. <laughs> That's really interesting, isn't it? Uh, many uh, experienced and kind of you know, I mean, you're not that old, Norma, but many old beekeepers uh, <laughs> will say, you know, we've been told to do so many different things over the years, and uh, and you know, been sold so many different gadgets and different, different things have been marketed at us for so long, but and, and now we do nothing, and the bees are better than ever, and and that's really yeah. so that's really interesting to hear, especially from you being you know um, an expert in bee diseases and bee science and, and bee research, that's really quite comforting to hear. Well, I think the the, the key thing in beekeeping is to try and bear, bearing in mind you're dealing with a, a you know a living creature to try and understand the biology of the bee and, and what makes it tick. And then I think if you, if you understand how bees behave, you can understand how they, can, how they will approach new situations. And you know, if you're faced with a beekeeping situation you've never come across before, if you know what the, uh, what the, what the bees will do, then uh, you know, you're a long way there. Great. So you're kind of looking at it from a, with a bee's eye view kind of thing, all the, all the potential situations that might happen. Do you think that other scientists uh, who might be studying bees or uh, practicing um, work with bees have a similar understanding or attempt to um, understand the I bee? It, I, I think it varies. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but there are some bee scientists that don't know very much about uh, about beekeeping and, and bee behaviour because they, they may be incredibly specialised. But equally, there are a lot of bee scientists who are very experienced beekeepers and, and do have a huge understanding of, of what makes a bee colony tick. Great. So what makes a bee colony tick? That's, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's good. And the, there are so many pests and diseases and viruses and, and potential disasters in, in beekeeping, aren't there? And just around the corner, perhaps, or just over the channel, certainly on the Channel Islands, is the Asian hornet and things like, uh, you know, and, and there will always be some predator, some pest, some new virus on, on the horizon. And bees, for 
more than perhaps more than 40 million years have been experts at adaptation but now they're because through the act of beekeeping and perhaps beekeepers are the biggest vector for bee stress that they have in the last i don't know 50 100 years have been a kind, a, a kind of optimum amount of of predators and, and mites and beetles and, and things perhaps because of human intervention and do you think bees are able still able to adapt and and develop their winning formula winning strategies i think bees are incredibly adaptable creatures and and will survive but there is no doubt that man in in his various activities have uh, you know seriously uh changed the environment for bees and made life a lot more difficult for bees in in most countries and i don't think there's any doubt that moving bees around the world has introduced pests and diseases into places where they weren't before uh, and has made life a lot more difficult for bees um, so and, and and that in turn makes beekeeping a lot more difficult than it used to be in many countries so our beekeeping certainly in this country changed with the arrival of of the varroa mite and uh, you know for, for many years untreated colonies uh, of bees would die within a couple of years after being infested with the varroa mite but i think there is now some evidence that bee populations around the world are are getting over that and there are uh, bee populations in various places that are becoming varroa tolerant and there's currently a lot of scientific interest in looking at those populations and trying to understand how the bees are coping and how we can use that to our advantage as beekeepers. Great. And the Asian hornet, do you, the, there are some species of bee, aren't there, that have strategies to, uh, to kind of fend off or to kill sometimes this very uh, voracious predator that will, that will yes. fly in front of a hive and just peck out bees all day long. So, so to explain to, to, to listeners who may not be familiar with the story, there are, we, in Europe, we have one species of, of hornet, uh, which sort of lives quite quietly in trees and, and people don't tend to notice and it doesn't really uh, harm bee colonies. Yeah, it's like a gentle but over giant. In South, yes, but over in Southeast Asia, there are a number of species uh, of hornet, which... Uh, particularly like eating bees and uh, uh, there's one particular species called Vespa velutina which somehow managed to get from Southeast Asia to France uh, about 20 or 30 years ago and has since spread to many European countries it's in northern Italy and it's now reaching north into into Belgium and it's become quite well established in yeah. the Channel Islands yeah. over the last few years and there have been a number of uh, findings on mainland Britain. And there's some debate at present whether it's actually established or not, or whether all the, the nests that are being found are uh, individual incursions. And in many ways, that doesn't, that's really an academic question. That the, If it isn't here already, it will be very soon. Yes. And so we have to be very vigilant to look out for it. And then meanwhile, we hear that in North America, in very recent times, a different uh, species of uh, Asian hornet, the giant hornet, yeah. uh, Vespa mandarinia, has been found on the West Coast in several places. And uh, uh, that's the one that really does uh, 
take bee colonies apart and you know there, there have been observations that uh, just a, a handful of these uh, hornets can completely wipe out a colony of, of the western honeybee in, in half an hour or so Gosh, uh, yeah. they are, are really destructive so we certainly don't want that one here but the <laughs> the, the, the one that is in Europe uh, can be destructive enough um, yeah and certainly in northern Spain it seems where it obviously likes the environment the density of, of nests has uh, approached quite incredible proportions in only a few years. Yeah. Uh, and as well as attacking bee colonies, it also attacks fruit crops and seriously damages them. And, pe uh, and, and people. And it's, and it's dangerous in itself, yes. So it's, it's a, a human health risk as, as well as a beekeeping risk or an agricultural risk. Um, whether, whether the hornet would do quite as well in the climate we have in Britain, I, I, I don't know. Um, but nonetheless, it's it's the current thing that beekeepers really have to look out for. <laughs> yes, right. It's the current the current buzz, isn't it, amongst well, one of them amongst beekeepers at the moment. Norman, do you think enough's being done um, about the Asian hornet? I think we're 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 dealing with it very effectively at the moment. In that the in this country we we have this. Uh, bee inspectorate, uh, inspectors who normally go out looking for fowl brood in colonies. And over the last few years, uh, they've been taken on for an extra period of time in the autumn looking for hornet nests and finding them and dealing with them. And I think uh, so far the response has been extremely effective. But what concerns me is how we're going to cope if the number of nests increases exponentially as it has in Spain and gone from a few nests a year to tens of nests to hundreds of nests to thousands of nests. Uh, and um, I, I do question how we're going to, to cope uh, should the population explode like that. Um, but I think beekeepers themselves are uh, being very vigilant and looking for it. And certainly in Jersey, which of course is is an island and, and relatively possible to know where every bee colony is, uh, the beekeepers and, and the general public are being extremely good at, uh, at finding these nests and, and, and dealing with them. Yeah, so the public can help. So actually that's something we, um, on the back of this podcast, we could put some information on our website about, uh, about the... Um, public about awareness, the Asian, yes. Yeah, about the Asian hornet, yeah. Yeah. There are apps on your phone you can get out there and ID things and... Um, easy ways to to send off a photo of a potential nest or something you might think is a nest. Oh yes, there, there is a, a non-native species directorate who have responsibility for looking for exotic pests, and and they've got a very good system set up to deal with uh, reports and photographs that the public send in. So, do you, obviously, that's we we have a kind of moral responsibility to to support and look after native pollinators and in in this island you know after the last ice age it's interesting isn't it what is indigenous and what isn't indigenous and obviously we we're not are we we, we came we sort of stepped over here from the mainland after the ice age but we have this kind of in britain we have this sort of pr these precious flora and fauna which isn't that diverse is it Be because of the no i mean water yes so in in mainland britain we have a subset of the species which are found uh, on the continent and Ireland has a subset of the subset that we've got. So Ireland has a 
a really quite uh, restricted uh, fauna in terms of the number of bee species. Um, but nonetheless, we've you know got quite a diverse bee fauna in in Britain and Ireland, and uh, you know unfortunately there's there's good evidence that over the last century or so uh, a lot of the species that were once common have become less common and species that were rare have become very rare or in some cases extinct unfortunately uh, and I, I think scientists are universally in agreement that that has been due to, to land use changes, uh, more intensive farming, urbanisation uh, and then added on to that changes in farming practice with fewer weeds and herbicides and insecticides and uh, and general tidiness in the countryside that means there are fewer wildflowers and fewer places for wild bees to nest. Um, yeah, so there there's definitely room for more schemes and and people just planting more trees and planting more forage and more creating more habitat for. for oh, absolutely, for yes, yeah. yes. I mean the the UK government uh, set up a. Um, a national pollinator uh, strategy a few years ago, yeah. which is trying to encourage anyone who owns or manages land to manage it for the benefit of wildlife in general and, and pollinators in particular. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's great. But what what sort of little concerns me is that there are few sort of sticks or carrots to persuade people to to actually go down that route. Right. Um, what do you mean? What, yeah. what, what could you imagine? Well, I, 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 there, there's little in the way of funding available. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And little, there, there aren't any penalties if you destroy habitat. Um, and do you think Brexit, how will Brexit affect that? Do you think it has affected that situation? Ooh, it's very difficult to say because yeah. we, we, we don't really know what, what kind of no. uh, uh, trade deal we might end up with with Europe or, or other places yeah. uh you know we 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 have a new agriculture bill that's currently going through parliament and a, a new environment bill and potentially uh there are opportunities there for improving things yeah. but unfortunately both of those pieces of legislation are what are called enabling legislation so they're very vague and they say the government may do this or may do that but yeah. as they stand at the moment there aren't even concrete commitments to maintain the kind of environmental protection we've enjoyed in recent years let alone improvements so yeah as they say with all these things the devil is very much in the detail and and we remain you know remain to interested to, to see exactly how things will pan out yes well, I mean, some species are doing very well, aren't they? <laughs> well, the Asian hornet, oh, for yes. one. And, uh... Yes, and, and, and some species of bee as well. I mean, they, it, it would be very easy to think that there was one explanation that explained the reason why every bee and pollinator species has declined. But uh, it, there are others that, that are doing really rather well. And there are common bumblebees that were common and are now just as common as they've always been. Yeah. And then there are uh, there was a, a species of, of bumblebee which wasn't found in Britain until 20 or 30 years ago called Bombus hypnorum, which mm -hmm. was very common uh, in France and mainland Europe. And it suddenly appeared here near Southampton and has since spread 
over the country and up into Scotland and seems to be doing very nicely. Thank you. That's great. Uh, so, yeah. So, you know, the, the idea that there was one thing that's wiping out all bees is, is a very simplistic explanation because mm. actually some are doing really well, whereas others are, are doing really badly and are, uh, and are sadly extinct. Do you think it's the the generalists that um, have, yes. the, have oh, the advantage? Yes. Generalist bees will manage to survive in a changing environment. And some of the species that have become very rare or extinct were ones that uh, were very specialist uh -huh. and, and maybe were only just hanging on uh, to, to start with. Um, you know, there are species of solitary bee that will only feed on the pollen of one uh, perhaps rather rare plant. And clearly that is, you know, a, a pretty precarious existence. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the sad thing, of course, is we often don't know very much about uh, those very rare species of either bees or plants or the relationship between them. And so you've got a real danger that you could have some rare species of plant that is only pollinated by one rare bee. And if the bee goes extinct, if that plant's perennial, it could go on setting seed for a number of years before anyone notices there's a problem. Uh, and by the time you notice there's a problem, it's too late to do anything about it. So, you know, we need a better understanding of how some of these really uh, complex relationships between plants and, and, and insects work. Yeah, so what, what f amazes me is that uh, flowers are here because of bees. And the, 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 what was, when I learned that fact, I thought, gosh, you know, it's kind of looked at the world with completely different eyes and how, how the how the you know bees had evolved from this ancient giant carnivorous wasp creature and uh, yes. who fed on, well, on the pollen of uh, of wind-blown pollinators like catkins and cones and things like that and then the plant kingdom had this this uh, response by by developing like lures and nectar and things like that would, would you mind saying a bit about that from your from yes your, i mean your i mean this 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 of course was a a problem that cha faced charles darwin in in developing his uh, you know, theory of evolution through natural selection in that, you know, clearly what use is a fully developed flower without a bee to pollinate it and what use is a, a bee without a flower to feed on? Uh, and of course, the answer is they, you know, one didn't appear before the other. They evolved together from earlier, simpler forms of, uh, of flowers that were wind pollinated and uh, wasp type creatures that uh, became vegetarians and and ultimately developed into into bees. And yeah. <laughs> the two have adapted over a relatively short period of of geological time, uh, around about the time of the dinosaurs. You know, the the very first flowering plants and and uh, insects that would become bees were uh, were appearing and and have, have developed ever since. Oh, you, you've reminded me of, of a brilliant cartoon of. Um... Uh, these uh, wasps that suddenly became vegetarian and grew long hair. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes. must have happened in the seventies. I don't know. So, uh, yeah. so ninety-nine point nine percent of everything that has ever lived has become extinct. And I mean that—that's a you know the, that includes a, a massive ancient history <laughs> of uh, billions of years, doesn't it? But and the Romans, the ancient Romans, had a saying and or a belief that if if a species or if something is uh, flourishes or is a uh, is doing very well in the place, and it can be considered to be their home. And uh, 
So that's interesting. If we look at, you know, Japanese knotweed, Himalayan balsam, horn, you know, the Asian hornet, uh, uh, and, uh, ground elder, you know, all these different things, which all of those things you can eat, actually. But uh, so, so there's something about, I don't know, there's a, a, is, a, is there a moral... Is there a moral issue here about about um, invasive species and us having the the kind of do we have the right like morally to say well you can live here or you can't live here? How do you feel about yeah, that? It's always yes, it's it's always a very tricky question, and and certainly there are purists who will claim that uh, you know no plant or animal is entitled to live in Britain unless it's you know been here since the last ice age. And then you think, well, you know, sycamore trees have been here for quite a long time and there's, there's quite a few of them and it would be a bit difficult to get rid of them. And actually, the, the, the interesting thing is of all the plants and insects and, and other animals that man has moved around the world and introduced into Britain, how only a tiny, tiny proportion of them ever become a problem. Uh, and many of them will you know, are not capable of surviving outside a garden or or outside a domestic situation. But unfortunately, there are a small number of species that can be extremely problematic. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, as you say, so some some things like Himalayan balsam actually turn out to be really good uh, bee forage, but are a nuisance to uh, farmers and others who manage land and, um, and fish. You know, yeah. so it all depends on depends on your point of view, really. Part of the problem may be that we've got this term alien species that we that we use and and it kind of turns people against certain weeds and really we need to look at each one individually, don't we? I, I think everything has to be done on a case by case basis, yes. Uh but it but you know, we we now have the experience of all these these species that have been introduced over the last few hundred years to know that we do need to be extremely cautious about bringing new things into new places. Um but the reality is that, well, certainly until a month or two ago, there was a huge amount of international travel and international trade, uh, which was inadvertently moving things around in an unintended fashion. And if any good comes out of this current crisis, I think it will be that it forces people to reevaluate what they were doing before and thinking, oh, actually, you know, do we need to fly on a plane to the other side of the world to have a half an hour meeting or could we just do it on the computer and uh, I, I think it is forcing to, people to re-evaluate a, a lot of the way they do things and and I don't think anything will go quite back to the way it was before. Just dwelling on that for a minute um, with regard to the honeybee do you think that restrictions will happen or need to happen on the importing of honeybees such as uh, queens from from Italy and things like that well this this is a huge huge controversy and you know interestingly over in the last uh, week or two there's been a very interesting paper published uh, by scientists involved with the UK National Bee Unit and Newcastle University who have looked at the incidence of a uh, a virus disease called chronic bee paralysis virus and chronic bee paralysis virus seems to have been responsible for a major uh, epidemic uh, affecting beehives more than 100 years ago uh, the so-called Isle of Wight disease which was alleged to have wiped out a, a large proportion of the colonies of bees in 
in Britain and, and Ireland. Now, it may be that the newspaper reports exaggerated, but there's no doubt that lots of colonies died and all the circumstantial evidence suggests that it was this chronic paralysis virus. And this new paper has looked at um, recent samples collected from around the country by the bee inspectors and they found that this disease has increased greatly in the last 10 years and they found an association between the hives of commercial beekeepers and a high incidence of the disease and that may be because commercial beekeepers tend to keep more bees in one place and we know that it spreads very easily from colony to colony and that seems to have been a factor in the spread a hundred years ago. Uh, but more interestingly, uh, because the National Bee Unit knows where imported queens went, uh, they found an association between imported queens and a high incidence of, of chronic bee paralysis virus. Mm. Now that might be because the imported queens are bringing it in directly, or it might be that the uh, imported queens are less able to deal with local strains of the virus and that actually is probably the most likely explanation to me um, and we have other evidence from a big experiment that was done uh, in 16 places around Europe a few years ago where they looked at local bees compared to bees brought in from elsewhere and they looked at them under standardized conditions for three years and they found that consistently and statistically significantly, the local bees survived better than the non-local bees. And the conclusion was that that was not because there are different diseases uh, in different places. You know, most diseases are present in most places, but there are local strains of these diseases that non-local bees are less able to deal with. And interestingly, there was another paper published recently from North America where the honeybee isn't even native, which showed that local bees, i.e. those that have been in the northeastern part of the United States for many years, uh, survived better in that location than bees of uh, Californian origin, which is very different. So it, it does seem to hold that local bees survive better than ones brought in from elsewhere. So, so to get back to your original point, I think there's good evidence that moving bees around the world is not a terribly good idea. Uh, people have suggested there should be laws to ban them, and people have suggested that Brexit would enable us to do that. Right. I'm not convinced that that's going to happen from a legal point of view, and I'm not convinced that it would be enforceable even if there was such a a ban or a law but I think the key thing is we need to be developing a better queen rearing industry to ensure that there is a supply of local queens for people to buy at a price that's appropriate and a time of year that's appropriate and that's where we really need to concentrate our effort on to improving the use of the bees we have already rather than looking to elsewhere I think. Great. Can you just explain um, to the listeners why someone would import a queen? Um, well, yes. <laughs> that, I mean, that's quite an interesting question in itself because uh, the, the statistics show that the number of queens imported into the UK has increased greatly in recent years. And it used to be about 12,000 queens a year. 
and more recently it's been 20,000 or more. Uh, but there hasn't been an increase in beekeepers in that time, so evidently more people are importing queens. But exactly why that should be, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, there is a very good case for replacing queens in in colonies because young queens are less likely to swarm and will be more productive. But you can do that by rearing your own uh, queens or manipulating your colonies to get them to produce their own queens. So. You don't have to buy them from abroad, um, but many commercial beekeepers find it easier to buy in queens from abroad than rear them themselves. And if they're in parts of the country where it's quite difficult to overwinter colonies, they buy in package bees. And, and, and I mean, as well as this country, that's particularly true in places like Canada, where the winters are very cold uh, historically. A lot of Canadian beekeepers have bought in package bees to start off new colonies each year. Um, and I, I'm not sure that's a terribly sustainable way to do beekeeping. And I think we have to have to go for, for something a little more sustainable. Uh, so I, I, I think in general, over the next few years, it will become ethically less acceptable to import queens into Britain. And I think this current uh, virus crisis has drawn people's attention to the dangers of too much international movement of biological things, if you like, and and I, I hope it will lead to, you know, more interest in making the best of the bees we have already. Yes, thank you, Norman. But might I add that uh, if you're a, just a beekeeper, not a commercial beekeeper. You you never ever have to buy a queen from anywhere. <laughs> you know, bees make their no. own, bees make their own queens, so they they, they will. Be, bees make their do... own queens, yeah. and, and and even if they don't want to do that, it's very easy to persuade them to. Yeah. It's very easy to split a colony and and persuade them to produce a new queen. You you don't need advanced techniques to do that. It, there are some very simple methods that somebody with two colonies can can use to uh, to replace their their queens. So yeah. you certainly don't have to buy them in. We talked about the indigenous honeybee. Does that really exist? Uh, we had a lot of uh, honeybee population wiped out from the Isle of Wight disease, uh, which you mentioned. But is is there still an indigenous population that exists in the UK? Yes. So this this Isle of Wight disease undoubtedly killed a lot of colonies more than a hundred years ago, and undoubtedly, as a response to that, bees were imported from elsewhere, and so the belief uh, became established that the old native uh, bee had become completely extinct and didn't exist anymore. Um, and indeed, there was even an extreme view among some professional conservationists that honeybees in general were not native to uh, Britain. And, and indeed, there are people that, that believe that uh, to this day. But I don't think there's any doubt that the honeybee has been in Britain since the last ice age at the same time that many of our plants uh, and other animals and other bee species uh, came into Britain. There, there seems to be very good evidence that uh, uh, bees came in at the same time because there was suitable forage for them and suitable places to nest. Um, and, you know, the archaeological evidence for beekeeping uh, certainly goes back to uh, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, and and you know numerous medieval accounts. So I, I don't think there's any doubt that the honeybee is native to Britain. As to whether it still existed 
Um, there were bee beekeepers who had bees that resembled the old native bee and there was a, a character called Beowulf Cooper in the 1960s who was a, a professional entomologist and beekeeper and he became convinced that uh, a lot of near native uh, bees existed in Britain and, and he and some others started trying to uh, breed these bees and looking using a technique called wing morphometry they were able to compare uh, the wings of these bees with uh, some historic samples and concluded that these were indeed native bees and I'm not sure anyone necessarily believed them but now we have very sophisticated molecular techniques that can actually look at the DNA of bees in various ways and in recent years there have been a number of studies, a growing number of studies that show that uh, certainly in the more remoter parts of Britain and Ireland there are good populations of native honeybees and there's new studies coming out of Wales and Scotland uh, and the southwest of England demonstrating that there are, are good populations of black bee and we now think that the population in Ireland is actually the largest reserve of, uh, of fairly pure dark European honeybees anywhere in Europe uh, because much of its former range has been polluted if you like by other strains of bee uh, and so th there is no doubt that there are near native honeybees in many parts of Britain and there's a growing interest in trying to keep those rather than other imported strains and that fits in very well with what I was saying about uh, local strains of bee surviving better and, and you know my, my belief tends to be when people ask what strain of bee should I buy I tend to say well probably the best bee for you is the one you have already that doesn't mean you can't improve it it doesn't mean you can't get rid of bad temper or uh, you know susceptibility disease you can improve it but probably the best place to start is the bees you have already is there such a thing as sort of eco-fascism <laughs> or you know is that, is, is that a thing or because uh, because you... even even if the honeybee wasn't native then you know why would that'd be a bad thing and it's also and it's sort of socially interesting that these you know sort of Cornwall and Wales and Scotland these places of sort of Celtic nationalism are where the, the kind of you know the black bee has been researched and found to still be there's a kind of it's it's an interesting uh sort of sociology there about how we view the natural world and and what's really going on in our psyche isn't it and there's there's things there to be uh, yeah, there are mysteries there to be penetrated. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would say I'm not. I'm not just championing, uh, you know, the British black bee. I'm championing local bees everywhere, really. And, yeah, and yeah. you know, the Italian bee and the Carniolan bee have been spread around the world. But actually, in parts of Italy, there is concern that you know pure Italian bees have been polluted with bees from from other places. And oh. you know, particularly in Slovenia, they are incredibly proud of, the, of their their local carniolan bees and and you know want to preserve those and then you've got yeah little islands in in the mediterranean uh, crete and sicily and and cyprus all have interesting indigenous uh strains of bee which deserve to be preserved so you know it, it's a case of you know uh, uh think globally act locally i think yeah is actually um 
is actually very relevant to beekeeping as in, in many other things. Excellent, excellent. And the gene, yeah. the gene pool, I've heard of a, an island near Denmark where they're doing a, a, a native dark bee project and some people have raised questions about is the gene pool broad enough for the bee to successfully uh, proliferate and, and be healthy? Yes, I mean, you know, in bee breeding, there's always a concern that uh, populations can become inbred and uh you know if your bee population does become inbred there are various things that go very seriously wrong which are quite obvious um and so it's something that bee breeders are always very concerned about but you would expect inbreeding to particularly be a problem in the united states where the, the honeybee isn't native in the first place and there were a finite number of imports in the first place yeah and then you have these huge queen rearing operations which produce thousands of queens each year from a very small gene pool you would expect that to produce a serious problem within breeding but interestingly some scientists in the us a few years ago did some experiments to look at inbreeding and concluded that actually it isn't a big problem in okay. those commercial populations so if it isn't a problem in those commercial populations I'm not sure it's yeah. something that your average beekeeper in Britain needs to worry too much about, to be honest. <laughs> and natural propagation, is that, uh, as a wild yes, colony mean, would naturally propagate, and, and you know there, there are a growing number of beekeepers that don't breed or, or artificially swarm? Well, I mean, or, even, even if you're trying to run a, you know, a breeding population based on all the beekeepers in an area cooperating with the same strain of bee and so on, as has been done successfully in Ireland, uh, even then you've got a hugely diverse bee population and, and I don't think there's any evidence that, uh, you know, inbreeding is a serious yeah. uh, problem there. Great, great, that's good news. Great, great, yeah. yeah. And the bees deal with it themselves. Uh, honeybees are very adaptable, yes, yeah. And as a... A, a beekeeper from the age of 15 you've had a lot of experience you know successes and, and disasters I imagine uh, could, what, what would you think would be have been your your kind of highlights and lowest moments of, of beekeeping oh gosh well I mean some some low points you know have been with a period where at Rothamsted I had to rear large numbers of queens and uh, you know that that can be a very rewarding experience when you see your queens that you have produced yourselves hatching out and laying uh, in a an impressive way in a new colony that's that's really rewarding but equally it can all go horribly wrong and you know you could you could do exactly the same thing and do everything right and then uh, mainly due to the weather it all goes horribly wrong and and you get a total failure uh so certainly the weather in britain is is the major reason why we <laughs> don't right. have a particularly advanced queen rearing industry okay, uh, okay. The, the queens have to be mated within a very limited time otherwise they're useless um but i i i find endless fascination in in bees and beekeeping uh no matter how many years you keep bees you always see something new and something surprising and uh you know, there's always something new to look forward to in beekeeping, I think. Yeah, there is true, isn't it? You never stop learning. There's always something surprising, as you say, or something, oh, wow, I didn't know they could do that, or look at that, I've never seen that before. Yes, well, uh, sadly, 
somebody that both Chris and I know called Peter Tompkins, who I've known for many years, passed away very recently. And he uh, started keeping bees um, when he was 14. And, and uh, sadly, he's, he's passed away in his late 80s. And, and he always used to say, oh, yes, always something new, new <laughs> with bees. And, and the endless fascination kept, kept him interested. Yeah, and he was inspired right to the end, wasn't he? And you could say that same about many beekeepers, many uh, men and women of, of a great length of years have a spark in their eye, don't they? And have a kind of a zest about oh, yes. bees. It's just, it, well, it keeps you going somehow. Yes. It? In, in, in my younger days, I used to do a lot of potholing and caving. And uh -huh. I used to read the uh, the caving magazines and you would see an obituary to somebody who had died aged 25 uh, or no, so yeah. in, in some yeah. hideous accident. And at the same time, I was reading beekeeping journals where there was an obituary to somebody who died aged 95 or whatever. And, and, <laughs> and that, that did perhaps suggest that beekeeping was yeah. a slightly safer thing to do than, than caving. But beekeepers, uh, quite often in Britain anyway, people will become a beekeeper when they retire from their career. So they've already reached that um, that good age of sort of 75 or whatever, you know, whatever. But they've already got there, you know. And so maybe the, the statistics might be skewed that way who knows there are certainly lots of medicines aren't there in the beehive that might that yes. are good for us i mean there's 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 always concern that uh you know beekeeping is going to die out because the beekeepers are elderly but i i don't subscribe to that view um lots of people would like to keep bees at a much younger age but they generally don't have the time so i think what is very important actually is to infuse young people to uh take an interest in in bees as, as as i did and you know when i've taken uh a colony of bees into my school my yeah, son's yeah. nursery school and and uh done open days for for other young people and and so on i think you know you can inspire uh, a young person with an interest in bees and 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 remove any fear they might have about bees and so, then you, you you plant a little seed that may take many years to actually come to fruition uh but you may nurture something and then you know when they get to middle age and have a little more time to to do beekeeping they then take it up so i think it's very important to to uh, enthuse young people with an yeah. interest in in natural history in general and, and bees in particular and how about inroads into commercial beekeeping would that be agricultural colleges or other avenues do you think that's something that that could be or even should be encouraged yeah, well, I, I mean, certainly the the Bee Farmers Association, which uh, is an association for the commercial beekeepers in this country, uh, you know, were very much concerned that their members were becoming increasingly elderly. Okay. And so over the, the last few years, they have set up uh, with um, a sponsorship from, from a, a honey company and, and uh, a, a number of other organisations and, and some money from uh, our Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, they've set up an apprenticeship scheme, which is now, uh, you know, in its fourth or fifth year or, or, or something, uh, a proper, you know, three year apprenticeship in commercial beekeeping, that, as well as including practical beekeeping skills, also includes all the uh, business management yeah. skills that you need to run a business and all the food hygiene uh, regulations and things you need to be uh, aware of and, yeah. and so I think is is producing a, 
uh, you know, a new generation, a new wave. well-rounded, Great. well-trained uh, young commercial beekeepers. And I think that's been an incredibly successful scheme. Oh, that's that's good to hear. That's good to hear. And the the last time you and I sat down over a cup of tea, there are two things uh, that you mentioned that stuck in my mind. And one was analog honey. You were saying that there is a company oh, yes. abroad had now developed a, and you know, and it's not honey laundering. It's not like sneakily, you know, creating a honey out of some kind of corn syrup. It's actually, they're actually doing it very transparently saying that this is analog honey. It's not honey, but it's, it's as good as honey perhaps and selling it. Well, could you say a bit more about that, please? Yeah. So, I mean, this, this was some company, I, I believe based in Pakistan and, and, as you say, they're, they're selling what they call honey analog, and they don't pretend it's honey, but it's uh, um, a special mixture of sugars that has been uh, produced by uh, enzymatic breakdown of, of other starches and, and, and things to produce exactly the right range of, uh, uh, of sugar compounds that are present in honey. And... You know, they suggest that if you added some suitable pollen to it, uh, nobody would be able to really? distinguish it from honey. And of course, that's not what it's for. Uh, it's for putting in cooking and so of on. Of course. But, uh, <laughs> we do know that there's a huge amount of honey fraud goes on around the world and honey adulteration where you mix sugar syrup with other honey and, uh, you know, where you sell honey that's produced in one place as honey from somewhere else. Yeah. And although analytical techniques are now very good at, uh, you know, distinguishing such honeys, there is a lot of fraud that takes place. And interestingly, at the um, uh, International Honey Show held at the last Apimondia, which is mm-hmm. the International Apicultural Congress held in Canada last year, yeah. uh, the judges had introduced some very rigorous uh, screening of honey samples uh, from an independent lab, and a large proportion of the honey entries from many countries failed on various grounds. Uh-huh. Uh, so that does suggest that there, you know, there is a problem with the commercial honey industry, yeah, uh, yeah. which needs addressing. And and of course, it uh, hopefully promotes uh, the sales of local of honey, local from, honey. Yeah. from the farm gate. Yes. So there's a recurring theme, isn't there, of locally sourcing your queens, locally sourcing your honey. And, yeah. you know, we're amidst sort of lockdown, as you've mentioned, you know, even locally sourcing your 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 lifestyle, perhaps, is a, is a, yes. is a good thing. Yes. I'll apologise for this now, Norman, but, but I, thought, I thought, I'm not going to ask you this question, I thought I'm going to. You also mentioned um, 5G last, last time I spoke to you <laughs> and, and, uh, and how you've been misinterpreted or, you know, because it's very, very current at the moment, isn't it? People are blaming it for, you know, um, coronavirus and all sorts of different you know, misadventures in life, and I don't know, is it technophobia? Is it is there is there some uh, smoke and fire in you know in there, or or is it a uh, is it just? I mean, what do you what do you think about five G? Yeah, well, I mean, this this isn't a new story, and it it, it didn't originally apply specifically to five G. It goes back a number of years and relates to mobile phones in general. Yeah, and uh, you know, obviously there is a concern that um, electromagnetic radiation at high doses can be harmful to various living things. And so uh, some scientists in Germany some years ago thought they would look at whether um, 
it wasn't actually mobile phones, it was the sort of portable phones that you might have in your house, were harmful to bees. And they did some really not very good experiments where they put uh, these um, uh, portable phones inside a beehive and they concluded that the bees got disorientated and, and so on. And it really wasn't a very well done scientific experiment and you couldn't draw any conclusions from it. Yeah. Uh, but the story got out that, you know, mobile phones kill bees. And bees are known to be sensitive to electromagnetic radiation, as are many living things. Yeah. And, and, radi and radio frequencies, use... would you say? Uh, yes, potentially, yes. And, and uh, you know, are sensitive to magnetic fields and may have the ability to use magnetic fields as one of many navigational aids. And so therefore it seemed logical that, yeah. uh, you know, electromagnetic radiation could uh, affect the navigation of bees and therefore could explain colony collapse disorder. But that's putting rather a lot of different things together. And we don't really know what use bees actually make of their ability to use the Earth's magnetic field uh, and the fact that losses of honeybee colonies have occurred in very remote places where there aren't any uh, radio signals, you know, doesn't suggest that there's a major thing. And, you know, whilst there may be effects on human beings of living right next door to a transmitting station the thing about electromagnetic radiation is it tends to the effects fall away very rapidly the further you get from the mast right and in fact 5g being a shorter wavelength actually uh is effective over a shorter range which is yeah. why you need more transmitting stations uh and so that would tend to suggest that the risk to bees of 5g is less than it is for conventional mobile phones and nobody has carried out any satisfactory experiments to show that conventional mobile phones have a harmful effect on bees. So yeah. it's not something that I would place very high on the, the list of risks to bees. Sure, sure. Great. So, yeah, as long as you don't put your hive next to a mast or leave leave your phone in the hive <laughs> yeah i mean interestingly that there's also concern that bees under that are close to electricity power lines can be very bad tempered and and certainly you know there is a lot of stray electromagnetic radiation around mm -hmm, mm -hmm. power mass but equally uh you know in a field under uh, a big pylon is often a piece of waste ground that a farmer will say to beekeepers oh you could put your bees there yeah. and there are many bee colonies directly under mm -hmm. uh pylons apparently with no ill effects um so so um you know it's it's a very interesting topic with with very little clear conclusions <laughs> yeah, okay. it might also be hard to to see what the results of an experiment would be like that so well if... i mean the, the, the there, I, I have a Dutch colleague who did, as far as I know, the best uh, experiment that, that has been performed so far. And he set up, I think, six colonies uh, outside and six colonies nearby in a Faraday cage. So a metal mesh cage uh, 
over the hives, which will exclude all electromagnetic radiation. And he monitored those for a long period of time. And he was not able to detect or produce any, any discernible difference between the two in anything he could measure in terms of the you know production of brood the production of honey and and so on but you know he concluded it probably does need more investigation but oh, there's certainly you know that experiment if there was going to be a big effect that that experiment ought to have produced it and and didn't yeah interesting. so i guess on 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 the other side of the human experience is intuition isn't it you have science on one side and you have kind of intuition on the other side and and i think um to listen to well i listen to my intuition i suppose and i think well yeah, I guess I wouldn't put my bees underneath a power pylon. I wouldn't want to work under one. <laughs> under one. But no, I don't know. No, no. I think me- mechanism rarely respects organism in ways that we probably yeah. can't see. And simply because uh, an ecosystem has evolved um, as a kind of holistic unit. And, and as soon as you change that with whatever whatever mechanism it might be, there's a, there's you know, it will take time for, for nature to kind of catch up and, and adapt. And yes. and uh, so, so that that's how how I kind of see it. I think, and uh, you know, I think intuition. It's a, 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 life can be a, a mixed kind of of scientific truth and and uh, and proof, but also something you just feel might be mm. good for bees. And so to have both of those informing your your life, not just beekeeping, but I think might be might be a, a nice way to look at look at how we progress so what do you think a newcomer to to beekeeping should be aware of and what are some of the differences in terms of beekeeping today than than uh, as opposed to beekeeping when you first started out uh well i started beekeeping before varroa came along and and so varroa did change things in that you know people who just had a few couple of hives at the bottom of their garden and didn't look at them those bees will have died when Varroa came along. But interestingly, if those hives are still there, it's it's possible they've been repopulated as as the population has become, at least to some extent, uh, resistant to, or tolerant to Varroa. But in general, anyone thinking of keeping bees, I would say find your local beekeeping association and go and join them. And they usually organize interesting lectures and they almost certainly do teaching and almost certainly will have some bees belonging to the club that you can play with to decide whether beekeeping is for you or not and and only then go out and buy a hive and some bees um you know beekeeping isn't for everyone it, it there are time commitments and uh you know you you then have responsibility for looking after livestock just like you know buying a cat or a dog or a pig or a cow, you know, you have a responsibility to look after it. Um, so, you know, get good advice and join a beekeeping association, I would say. Great. A gradual approach with plenty of plenty of reading and learning. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and just on the subject of bees in general, uh, the um, all species of bee, uh, what can people do? What would you advise people could do in their own backyard to support uh, different species of bees? Right. Well, I mean, many of the many of the plants and, and flowers that people have in gardens are good for bees. And if you go around the garden centre, you will find there are certain 
labels saying be friendly and some of my colleagues at Sussex University did a survey of these labelling schemes and found that some are better than others. So the, the Royal Horticultural Society, perfect for pollinators, labels are based on research that they've done themselves. But some of the other labels are very sort of wildlife friendly and so on, are very vague. But in fact, if you go around a garden centre on a sunny day when the plants are flowering, you will see the ones that attract bees and and they're ones to go to go for but in terms of your own garden uh less tidiness is good for wildlife in general yeah. and if you can let a, a piece of your grass uh leave it without mowing it uh, i mean we moved here a year ago and we left an area of lawn uh unmown and just mowed it at the end of last summer and there were already some very interesting flowering plants come up in there that's providing a lot of uh, forage for bees so you know a less intensive management of your garden can benefit uh, wildlife in general yeah, and of course the other species of bees from the honeybees need places to nest and so tussocky grass that will develop uh, if you leave it as I've suggested will provide places where small mammals can nest and then bumblebees will nest in the same places as those small mammals and if you leave vegetation uh, un, uncut there will be lots of stems of hollow stems of plants that different bee species can nest in and so generally less tidiness in gardens is good for wildlife mm -hmm. yeah. That's Great, really good advice. Uh, yeah. yeah. I could just see that. I, I imagine all across Britain, you know, we could see these gardens so slowly becoming <laughs> becoming untidier, but f more full of uh, diversity and wildlife. Well, in, interestingly, the, the the plant charity Plant Life has has been uh, uh, championing mowing your grass less less often for yeah. wildlife mm -hmm. uh, for a couple of years, and I, I think they're mainly interested in. Uh, you know, interesting plants that will develop, but obviously those are, are forage for bees and other pollinators and nesting places as well. So, you know, that is a, a, a yeah. good thing to do. The rewilding, isn't it? Rewilding. Yes. Oh, yes. Rewilding re is a, you know, a very trendy phrase at the moment. And, and, you know, it's something that doesn't have to just be done by large landowners. It's something that anyone with, you know, even the tiniest of gardens can can leave mm -hmm. some space for wildlife. Yeah, and many colonies of bees are euthanized each year by pest control officers. For example, in someone's soffits or the wall of their house that they they are scared of or, or worried about their children being stung. It be it must be a scary figure. I can't imagine how many are. But is there anything you you could say to reassure people who might be worried about a colony of bees living in their loft? Uh, yeah, I mean, and 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 it it isn't just honeybees. People get very concerned by bumblebees and solitary bees living in their walls and things like that. And mm -hmm. generally speaking, bees are if you leave them alone, they will leave you alone. And there are there are very few situations where a colony is really dangerous to anyone and and needs to be destroyed. Um, and uh, you know, if if a bumblebee colony sets up a nest in your garden you know that's a great privilege and you should enjoy mm -hmm. looking at it and the benefit of the, the pollination rather than wanting to get rid of it Oops, yes and, uh, and folklorically it's a good omen if bees are yes. close isn't it it's a very good omen a good thing yes i mean it, it you know throughout history and in many different cultures around the world 
bees have been revered for uh you know as as uh, as deities and and bringing good luck and and so on so um you know there's there's good reason for that thank you norman it's uh, it's been such an education and hearing about you know a bit about your life about how you started beekeeping uh, your work and you kind of cleverly turned your passion into your occupation which i think is, is a great thing and and a bit about rothamsted and all of the um the threats and, and potential potential invasive species it's just uh, you are such a, a excuse the pun but a, a hive of knowledge and experience so thank you very much for for your time uh, this morning well yeah thank you it's been been good to talk and and it certainly is true that I'm, i've been very fortunate to uh, you know uh, spend my life doing something that i find interesting and, and actually occasionally get paid for it so it's been, been good well that was amazing listening to norman talking there he's just got such a nice personality he's he's lucid he's He's got such a wide knowledge, um, full of wisdom. I'm just, you know, was spellbound listening to him talk about all those different subjects, an amazing range of, of things. And um, what what struck you, uh, Chris? Did you hear anything from from Norman that you haven't chatted with him about before? Or oh, I learned so much. I could have listened to him all day long, and and just his, he just so generous with his knowledge and the way he presents himself it's a it's like a quite riveting i found it quite riveting i i really liked what i really liked was uh what really stuck with me is that that, that very simple way of working with bees and how he he liked to see any kind of situation from the bees point of view yeah that's really good advice for anybody whether you're a bee scientist or a beekeeper or just someone who likes bees absolutely might have a bee on your windowsill you know just to see (laughs) see the situation just to really empathize with what their needs might be what what they might be thinking if they do think you know but what they what's going on for the bee well that's right yeah so bee centered very bee centered yeah very bee centered and and it's it's really refreshing to hear that i mean we when we hear about science you know the word science um often becomes very sterile uh, as a word, very sterile. I mean, uh, f- forgive me, you know, all those scientists listening, but you know, it can be quite a, it can be quite a formalized and and uh, and dry, sometimes uh, subject. And uh, when you, and and also one that doesn't build in the idea that you're working with a living organism. Um, so study of various organisms entail being very theoretical about them and what i mm-hmm. what i like about uh what about like about norman is that he sees it as you say sees everything from uh from a bee perspective and, uh, and he bring, yes yes you're right and he brings heart to science in a way and you can feel his his care and compassion for nature and how the science has become kind of his way of of supporting nature and, and with a real care and 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 love for and reverence of nature. Yeah. So 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 it's a great mix, isn't it? Because you you're right. So we can sort of see scientists as perhaps seeing them maybe a bit too like a machine or something a bit too clinical or or or, uh, or too uh, economically funded or something like that. Or, or, but Norman brings brings heart to that. I think. Well, there's a whole raft of things that have come out of that interview and. Uh... Um, one of the things we talked about was Asian hornet, 
Um, if you want to find out more about the Asian Hornet, uh, you can visit our website where we've put various links to sites related to the Asian Hornet, such as the National Bee Unit and AHAB. Yeah, so I'd like to learn more about the, uh, what was it, the Vespa Mandarinia. Sounds really, really... Oh, the giant. Really, yeah. Yeah, yeah the giant. It can wipe out a beehive in half an hour. That's that needs to i think we need to learn learn more about more about that it's it's one thing after another isn't it sort of um yeah. and and uh you get this you get a threat of of one thing and then someone taps you on the shoulder and says yeah hang on you 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 think that's bad but look that's, yeah. <laughs> like, like the film jaws exactly yes <laughs> or beowulf even that's a great tale isn't it you know the, there's harmony in the community some monster comes, so they kill it, and then the monster's mother comes along. <laughs> That's right. And, and uh, I thought it was really interesting what Norman said, advice Norman gave to people about um, encouraging bees into their into their garden. I, I love I love this idea of him saying, uh, "Go wild." You know, more and more people are saying this, and mm-hmm. and I think it's just really prevalent. But I think it just makes so much more sense that you you yeah. are that that of course you know by just having more wildness, more wilderness around, uh, you're just going to get more insects, you're just going to get more bees, you're going to give bees more forage. Yeah, interesting. I suppose as a species, we've wanted to control nature because it has been dangerous, you know, and it has been, you know, wolves and bears and, and other species, you know. And so we've had this inbuilt human desire to want to control nature to make it safe and but then perhaps that's gone too far and now now we need the the balance needs to be redressed perhaps i think so yeah yeah i mean that's the idea of the garden isn't it that was the whole idea of uh cutting mm. your grass and all that kind of stuff to, to... Yeah, so things things can loom up on <laughs> yeah, <laughs> stalk you in the long grass yeah i think a nice nicely cut lawn perhaps reminds our subconscious of grazing animals as well perhaps and game and and things like that and of course you can see so you feel secure because you you can see the you can be the the king of your own little plot or whatever and see anything I don't know, it must be reassuring, like, yeah. like being on a hill. Is you, you feel euphoric on top of, top of a hill because you feel safe and secure and can see the bigger picture, can't you? I suppose a lot more to it than that. Well, you can see, you can see the reason for it, but as you say, uh, it's probably t- just gone too far. And I think possibly that's yeah. been, um, we've been influenced by, you know, magnificent um, stately homes, places mm. like Versailles in, in France, you know, where yeah. where you've got these just acres and acres of uh uh mown mown grass and uh i think it was a it was a form of demonstrating if you were rich and uh aristocratic to to mow a lawn or or to keep an area free of um you know weeds and and yeah and like was, a was, symbol, was yeah. a status symbol was to demonstrate that you had so much money that you could uh yeah. afford to leave this land doing absolutely nothing um and and right. and that you didn't have to even keep keep any animals on it or anything because you were so yeah. rich you just had all this space so that's changing isn't it that's a good thing in our gardens and in farming in general people have bits of set aside and there are schemes for for wildlife aren't there and, and yeah we can do it on our own small scale but it, it needs to happen on a planetary scale as well to look after the wilderness it was gr- brilliant to listen to you norman and um any other thoughts chris 
I would encourage people again, encourage people to the National Honey Show and the Spring Convention where you can learn more bee science if you're really interested in it. There are lecturers there with the latest discoveries and research projects, putting them in very uh, comprehensive and easily digestible lectures. I mean, there are other conventions, aren't there? Maybe I'm a bit biased towards those two. But there are other conventions in Wales and you know, up in Scotland and over in Ireland. And of course, your local honey show and your local bee club will have, will be putting on a lecture series throughout the winter months. Thank you for listening to Living Being. Join us for the next episode. Uh, rate and subscribe us and you can visit our website at www.livingbeing.com. See you next time on Living Being. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for listening and be well. Bye.